So my wife's uh, encouragement to me for this morning was that, Beach, it's a long weekend. Like, hardly anyone will be here. <laughs> uh, thank you, Lord. I'm glad you're all here today. I'm excited about this word. Andy approached me a few months ago and asked me to preach on, uh, on worship, which is a passion of mine for a long time. And I was excited, and I thought, yeah, that sounds really cool. He's like, PJ, I just feel like, you know, half our service is worship. We have people from all different backgrounds and denominations. It'd be really cool to unpack it, kind of where we stand and some of our ideas. And I've been in this church for 20 years, so I have a bit of the heartbeat of it. Certainly not a professional on the topic, but I'm excited to unpack some things today. So that was a cool idea. And then a few weeks ago, he's like, Beach, how about September 4th? And then it just became really real. And uh, for the last few weeks, I've just been meditating and steeping on this topic. Um, <laughs> I remember when we were traveling and, and uh, up to Smithers, and we were at a hotel, and, and I was like awake at 2 in the morning thinking about this, and God was like giving me ideas, and I'm in the middle of a hotel with two beds, and uh, there's nowhere to go in the room, and it's dark, and if any light happens, Ruth can't sleep. So, so I like crawled out of bed, like laying on the floor with my little iPhone, like writing notes, this like downloading stuff. So God's been really faithful over the last few weeks. I know the guys at the back, my friends are taking bets on at what point I'm going to start crying. So if you guys want to get in on that action, uh, just go see Brandon at the back there. <laughs> Super excited to see a whole bunch of faces here today. I know a lot of people have uh, said that they're praying for me over the last week. And I just, uh, my prayer for today is just that, you know, we, this topic of worship, we, we all have perspective on it. We all have background on what it looks like growing up and how it should look and things like that. I thought about, you know, in the early 80s to late 80s, there was a lot of kick dancing in the church I was at, you know, like the jump kicking. Uh, it's really changed over the years. Clapping was a significant thing in the early 90s. I know a lot of you can't believe I was alive in the 80s. Ethan's like, thinks that's crazy. Um, I'm 41, just so you guys know. Paul's word for me in prayer this morning was something from Proverbs about having gray hair and uh, the wisdom that comes with that. So I'm hopeful for that this morning. But as I was meditating on this, I was like, God, like, why do we worship how we worship? I was like, how do I unpack this? Why do we do what we do? Why, what is it, why does it look the way that it looks? Um, how do you want it to look? All these, God was just giving me all these questions that I think people ask about it. Why, why do we clap? Why do some people raise their hands? Why is, why do we see flags in church sometimes and dancing and shouting and all the things that we see through scripture? And I thought, well, I'm going to go back to Genesis as every hot tub session with Wes has ever started. I always say, well, let's go back to the garden and see what happened in the garden. So I thought I'm going to go back to Genesis and I'm going to start reading in Genesis at the very beginning. And I'm just going to watch to see where worship started. Like, where did it start to happen at the very beginning? What did it look like? So I started reading in Genesis, and we have the creation story. Genesis, you know, in this day you made this, and this day you made this, and this day you made this. And then when we get to Genesis 2, we see that the Lord made man, and then he took man and put him in the garden to work and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat, you will surely die. So we've gone through all of creation. We've got to this point, man, boom, in the garden. And then it says he made him to tend the garden and don't eat this tree. 
And I'm like, so where's all the verses? I'm like reading and I got to there and I'm like, but where's all the stuff that says, but you make sure you sing five songs every Sunday and like, like I made you to worship, right? Like that's what we always say. We're created to worship. And we get that context later on in scripture. But at the beginning, I was like, well, it doesn't, he's not talked about that yet. But he says, don't take of this tree. And I thought the, the, the first act of worship, the first request God gives to man is for obedience. So the name of my service this morning is Obedience and Worship. He says, don't partake of the tree. And then it says that in, in Genesis 3, it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and good for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And I thought, this is a picture of how we can justify and rationalize partaking of things that God has asked us not to. And we can apply that to lots of areas of our lives, and I'm not going to go down all those rabbit holes this morning. But I thought he asked us to, for obedience, and then we come up with all these reasons why it's okay not to obey. And that's how she justified partaking of that fruit. It's interesting. We're, this will all make sense in a little bit, okay? And how this ties together. This is the first picture of God showing us the importance of worship. And I thought, well, how is that worship? Sorry, the importance of obedience. I thought, how is that worship? And, and God instantly dropped the, the verse in my spirit about how to obey is better than sacrifice. So 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said to Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So part of today is unpacking the importance of obedience in worship. Because to obey is better than sacrifice. I think a lot of times we can come and we can just sing four songs and think, oh, we did our thing. We sacrificed. But at the heart, God is looking for obedience. And then out of obedience, we want to worship. So what does that look like? So I kept reading through Genesis and I got to Genesis 4, 3 to 4. And it says that Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. And it says that they were on the field, and Caleb brought some of the fruit of the soil to offer to God. And Abel brought fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. And God looked with favor on Abel's offering. And I thought, this is the first spot where we see that we can bring something that pleases God, but we could also bring something that doesn't please God. Because Cain was really frustrated and eventually ended up killing his brother. But the point is, they both brought something. But it's the first picture of the fact that I can actually bring something that pleases God's heart. And, and I want to be an Abel. When I worship God, I want to be an Abel. I want to bring something that pleases his heart. And I don't just want to bring food just to bring it. I don't want to just sing a song just to sing it. Do you see the, where that's going? Where did they learn that? Where did Cain and Abel learn? Where did Abel learn that? I'm going to do something that pleases God's heart. How did he learn that? He didn't have like, did he have Sunday school? I don't know. You know, I don't know how many years go between Adam and Eve and then them being born. But it's interesting. We have this whole book to learn how to worship God and, and respond to him and learn what matters to him and learn what pleases his heart and learn what excites him. Where did they learn that? It's an interesting thought. 
We fast forward to Genesis 8, reading through here, just looking at all these experiences, right, of man to God, man to God, what did it look like? Genesis 8, it says, we see Noah get off the boat, and instantly it says, he built an altar and sacrificed animals to the Lord. And in verse 21, it says, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. So here we see Noah's first response after calamity being an offering of sacrifice to God, and it's pleasing to him. So there's some principles here that I hope you're catching. I know I'm skimming through this part because I want to get to the, but I'm trying to set a table here of, of the initial interactions of man to God and what that looked like because there's some principles in there. Now I was having so much fun digging into this because I thought, how do these guys learn to do this? I mean, the second the fall happened, there was separation. The second Eve partook of that fruit, there was separation that took place. And all of a sudden, you know, we read in Revelation, there's, they're singing and praising all day long, and it's, it's perfect unity in heaven, right? There's no evil. It's all good and all this. And I thought, before the fall, it must have been like that. It must have been perfect unity with God walking through the garden, right? And then the fall happens, and all of a sudden, we become aware of our need to be reconnected. All of a sudden, we become aware. So I hope you see where this is going, but this is... Uh, uh, an element of worship and praise in our lives and, and what it does when we do it, okay? It's this reconnection thing. So it's having so much fun digging into this. And then I felt, God, I thought this is going to be so fun unpacking all this, tying it all together. And then I just felt God say, I want you to keep it simple. Yeah. I want you to share worship from your story, your experience, your testimony. I love the relationship that we have. I wrote down what he, what he said to me. I love the relationship that we have. It's hard to read when you're crying. <laughs> Tell people how we became such great friends. Okay. <laughs> how, we, how you've learned to love me in worship, how you've learned to hear my voice, how you've learned to respond to me and to experience me in a very full, whew, and lasting way. I want you to share your experience and encourage people about the incredible feast that's available at his banqueting table, and I love it. So funny, all morning in prayer, everyone brought words that had to do with my sermon. They were literally out of my sermon. And then Deborah drops the banqueting table. I don't know if you guys caught that, but he, she, and just passing, she just said, we're just here at this banqueting table. And I was like, huh? <laughs> it's like one of those moments. <laughs> Did she say banqueting table? I just had this picture of how we come to the banqueting table in worship. God lays out this incredible spread. And we come in. But we're creatures of habit, and I'm sure half of you are sitting in the same seat. At least 80% of you are sitting in the same seat you sit in every Sunday, probably. And we come into worship, I think, as creatures of habit, and we go, this is the side of the banqueting table I sit at. These are the four dishes I partake of. Those dishes over there are for those people. I don't do that clappy thing or that hand raisy thing. That's those guys at that side of the table. This is my side of the table. This is where I'm comfortable. 
This is the food that I enjoy. I like the ambrosia salad and the dumplings and the. I don't do the meat thing. You know, that's for those guys over there or whatever it is. But if all we ate is ambrosia salad, you see where this is going, okay? So I just I want to say to you guys, he has prepared a banqueting table and he's excited about every meal at that table. And he would love for you to partake of every meal at that table. And there's something in every meal at that table for you. I want to stretch. I want. I want us to leave today feeling stretched. We have a box that we view um, how we interact, or how we think we should, or how we feel it's appropriate, or what we're comfortable. I want to say that God wants to stretch our comfort zones, and I want us to walk away feeling excited about that, as much as you can be excited about that. <laughs> I grew up in Terrace, BC. Uh, we moved there when I was five. We were the first family uh, in the Rock Church there, actually. When they planted the church, it was Mike and Mo Rosenall and their daughters, Leah and Ruth. And then it was uh, my family and me and my sister and brother, Jake and Rebecca. And uh, Ruth was a year older, so she was our Sunday school teacher. <laughs> I'm sure Deborah can relate to this. So we were the first family in that church, actually. And so I grew up in the church, and then at age eight, uh, my parents separated, got divorced, and kind of my world fell apart. And um, I was thinking in the service, like, I should not be here today. And I was thinking of other people in here that I know that story exists for them too. By the grace of God, I'm standing here. Uh, by the grace of God, I have a 41-year a, a story here that just points to him. And uh, there's been really hard times, uh, but he's been faithful. So at age eight, uh, they got separated. But somehow through key people in my life, and I want this to inspire some people, but my parents were off the rails. Drugs, alcohol, um, just crazy stuff. And I'm not going to go down that road this morning, but it was nuts. And... Um, but some key people in the church sewed into my life. Mike and Mo took me under their wing, and somehow I was at church every Sunday. Someone made sure that I got there. I was in Sunday school, and at the age of 11, 12, I picked up my first guitar. And I'm going to do the uh, token water, wet my throat here thing, because that's important. Picked up my first guitar. Mike started teaching me some chords. And I would take home uh, the song sheets at the end. We used to use song sheets, thank goodness. And I would take them home at the end of service. And I would spend hours, six to eight hours a day playing guitar. I didn't have, I'm not going to get into it. I didn't have any friends. I was bullied. I was, uh, had what the doctors call a little bit of a weight problem when I was a kid. And uh, so I was alone. But I had guitar and I had these songs. And I would sit there for six to eight hours a day and I would play guitar and sing these songs. And uh, it was more just about learning the chords, of course. But uh, the more I played, the more I sang, and the more I sang, the more real the words I was singing started to become to me. The more real they became to me, the more passionately I wanted to sing them to God. So it, it transitioned from just like trying to learn songs to like, oh, there's something, oh, that kind of felt something there. I'm going to try that a little, a little more, and then I would press in and... And there was this relationship that started to be born. I was starting to get a very deep revelation of who God was and how amazing he was and how desperate I was for him. And ultimately, I started to see how much he loved me and how much he enjoyed interacting with me. I was thinking this morning, you know, when we sing these songs and we sing these lines kind of over and over, and we're like, why are we singing this over and over? 
And it's funny because I think sometimes we sing a line and we just sing it. And then we sing it again. And then, and then like by the fifth time, all of a sudden my heart starts to go, God, what are you having this for me? You've been so, so good to me. Singing that song. You've been so, so good to me. Lord, to think where I would be if not for you, if not for you. And we just sing that once and we can move on. But oftentimes we sing that over and over. And it's like, why are we singing this line over and over? Because the more that I sing it, the more revelation that starts to come of how good he is and how much he's rescued me from and how high and lifted up and mighty he is. It's a revelation that stirs in us. So outside of praise and worship and doing guitar, the life was pretty dark. I love what Aaron brought this morning because that was me. I, I was in a dark place. Uh, I can remember holding a wrist to my a knife to my wrist. I think I was 13 or 14. And just like, what is the point? Like, everything's hard. No one loves me. Life sucks. All the things. And uh, I just remember feeling, honestly, with a knife on my wrist, just like weeping and... I used to look in the mirror and tell myself how stupid I was and like all the things that you can, I'm sure some of you guys have been in that place. And I just remember a knife on the wrist, just hearing that small voice of Jesus saying, I love you. I have incredible plans for you. I don't want you to do that. I have great things for you. And uh, that was enough. In that moment, that was enough. And I thought, okay, I hear you. And I'm just going to press into you and whatever you have for me. So, we have this life experience, reflecting on that, fully in love with him. And I thought, out of that relationship and experience, I just want to unpack some things that I've learned. I started leading worship when I was 12, I'm 41. Uh, there's been two two-month periods in my life where I wasn't involved in worship. Uh, one was I went off the rails on a bender, traveled all over, rock climbing everywhere in the United States. For three months, I lived in a Volkswagen van, 1972. Uh, and I quickly realized that there was nothing in all that stuff. Thank God it didn't take me long. Doing drugs and alcohol and just traveling all over trying to find something else, and I quickly realized that God was enough. And thank God I came out of that really quickly. I know some of us can get stuck there for 20, 30 years, but that doesn't matter. Because as long as we arrive at the place where we realize God's enough, uh, then that's your testimony. And then the other two-month period, I was working in Alberta and uh, in Sylvan Lake doing construction, and it was the sweetest two months in the Word of my life because I wasn't plugged into a church I wasn't relied on for music and worship and things like that. And I just pressed into the word like I'd never pressed in before. It was incredible. It was alive. And I'm thankful for that season. But here we are, 41. <laughs> what is praise and worship? I think we hear that as a, let's do praise and worship this morning. It's not one thing. They're not both the same. So I want to unpack it a little bit of what we, what we know this stuff to be. Praise and worship is not an add-on to a service to fill time. It's not fast songs and slow songs. It's not praise isn't fast and then worship is slow. If that's what you think it is, I'm here to unpack that for you this morning. 
It's not by, it's not songs by definition, although we use songs for praise and worship. It's definitely not limited to songs. Okay. It's not something we do to make us feel better about life. Praise and worship is not something we engage in so that we get the goosies, feel all bubbly, and leave here feeling better and like we just took a beautiful shower, okay? The beautiful thing and the romantic exchange of us worshiping God is that that does happen. As we fix our eyes on Him and as we look up, all of the things in our life become very small. Our circumstances fall away. And there is an exchange. There is, as I, as I worship Him... As I, you know, the Bible says we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. That means to renew something is to make it new again. So as we declare the truth of who he is, and as we sing these scriptures and songs and word, most, most songs we sing come from scripture. Uh, if they don't, it's probably from an intimate interaction with God. Um, but we sing these songs, and as we sing them and declare them, it transforms our mind, and we begin to think about God differently, and we begin to walk at the door thinking about the week differently. Right? So we don't come in for us, but there is a gift for us in it. Okay? Primarily, praise and worship is primarily for the king of kings. So if praise is standing before the king, imagine the king on a throne right in front of you, and you're standing in front of him. Praise is acknowledging how incredible he is. It's thanking him for his kindness and his goodness in your life. This is what praise is. Think about praising your kid. Lyric does something. She makes something beautiful. And I'm like, Lyric, that's so incredible. I can't wait for the world to see this, what you've done. That's praise. You see that? Magnifying how, God, how great God is to everyone around you and even to yourself. It's declaring him to everyone in the room and all around of his greatness and his exploits and accomplishments, his never-ending perpetual goodness. Praise is an, is, it's an appropriate response to a great achievement. And he did the greatest achievement. Psalm 150, 1-6. And guys, I want you to stretch your thinking this morning as we read through these verses. It's one thing to read it through as a one-off, but when we pack a bunch of these together, I want it to stretch what you think this should or shouldn't look like in your thinking. Praise 150, 1-6. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and lyre. Praise Him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with strings and flute. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Psalm 47, clap your hands, all you nations, not some of you nations, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. And I realize some of this doesn't fit inside of some of your guys' ideas of what worship should or shouldn't look like. So I hope you're feeling a little tugged here. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, people under his feet. He chose our inheritance for us. The pride of Jacob, who he loved, God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God and sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For those of you that don't like songs repeating over and over, it happens here too. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. 
God reigns over the nations. God's seated on his holy throne. Praise is an outward expression of gratitude and wonder and awe, all wrapped together in a declaration. It's interesting that praise is not only accomplished through words. It's also accomplished through sound. We see that here. Praise him with the tambourine. Praise him with the... You see that? And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about, why is that? Why is sound involved? And I was thinking of a hockey game. Why does Judy bring a cowbell to a hockey game? Where did that come from? And Doug's got the drum over there in the corner, and he's beating it like crazy. And we're all okay with it. We think it's great. Ring the cowbell. Why? It's like a rally cry. It's a celebration. It's a like, it's like, come on, guys, we're all together in this. Can you see that? And I think, I think sometimes we take things that God designed for praise and apply it elsewhere and enjoy it. And it's at the expense of applying it where it was originally intended. It's really clear in Scripture. It's really clear. We just read a bunch of it. So if that's praise, then what is worship? Worship is a sacrifice of flesh or self. It's falling at the feet of the king. If praise is standing before the king, telling of his goodness, worship is falling at his feet, responding to his goodness. Worship is a sacrifice of flesh. It requires energy. It's a spending of myself in some capacity to the king. It's an offering of time or energy or money or self. But worship is always in response to the king. You know, we, we look, we fast forward to the New Testament. We see that we now have Jesus. Like, this is all from Psalms, right? Pre-Jesus. We fast forward to the New Testament. We have Jesus, and we have the deposit of the Holy Spirit. And they point us to God. So, just think about that. Like, they, they, the Holy Spirit is there directing us and pointing us and putting things in our spirit that, like, would please the Father's heart. Psalm 95, 1 to 7. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is made for it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. I'm challenged reading this stuff. How, God, how do you want me to respond? Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout, shout for joy. One of my favorite passages as a young kid that has come with me and I meditated on it constantly is in Samuel 24. 22 to 24, and I'm not going to get into the whole backstory, but basically David knows he needs to connect with God. He needs to come and offer, build an altar and sacrifice to God. And, he, and Arona sees him coming and says to David, let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing, threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Arona gives all this to the king. Arona also said to him, may the lord your God accept you. 
And I thought, Arona knows that David needs to connect to the king. So it's almost like, here's the three songs of fast, and here's the two slow songs. I can put everything together for you. And hopefully when you do it all, hopefully he accepts you. Hopefully God accepts you. And I thought of Cain and Abel. Cain put together this thing and offered it to God. And Abel put together a thing and offered it to God. And God accepted Abel. And I think they read that thinking, well, Abel just drew the good straw. You know, Abel drew the, luckily God liked his. And like, how do they know? He just got lucky, right? And Arona is, is saying, okay, I know you need to worship. So here's how I know that you worship. I'm just, I'll set it all up for you so you can just do it. And David says to Arona, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I will not offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing. And uh, when I am in a position of leading worship and singing the same song I sang two weeks ago, my heart in approaching it is, God, I want this to cost me something in my heart. Even though I sang it before, I want to offer something to you. If I ever feel like I'm in a routine or a mundane or a lethargic or a default mode in worship, I'm reminded of this verse. I'm reminded of how Abel pleased God with his offering. It causes me to dig deep and ask God, what would you like from me in worship today? How can I please your heart today? You're far more worthy than anything that I can give. But I want to give you everything that I can. Sometimes the cost is in my response. Sometimes the cost is laying down something in my life that he's putting his finger on. Sometimes it's my dreams and agendas that I've been called to lay down. These are all acts of worship, you know, where you're like laying it down to the king. Sometimes it's worshiping in a way that maybe I'm not comfortable with. I have a really cool story. One of my, I know we're running out of time here. One of my best buds growing up, his best man at my wedding, Byron. It's not Deborah's son, Byron. Most of you probably don't know him. He's shared this story preaching before, so I feel like I'm allowed to share it, so I'm going to. We were up in Terrace, and we were having worship celebrations. It was a monthly thing, and it was where every church in town was invited. Imagine that. And we would have these get-togethers where there would be 12 to 14 churches represented. And I'm talking from Pentecostal all the way through to Baptist, even to Catholic. And people from all these denominations would come together under one roof and we would worship God. And I think where the, you know, where brethren dwell together in unity, there's a commanded blessing and there was, it was incredible. But the coolest thing is that everyone worshiped God different and we were exposed to each other's things. And it was like, oh, there's those flag in church again. They made it out. And there's the, you know, you see what I'm saying, right? And it's, so it's an interesting dynamic. So anyways, Byron not a flagger, <laughs> uh, was, but he, was, he loved God, and he was on an intimate journey, and we were driving to Prince Rupert. That's where the worship celebration was. And as he was driving, he felt God say in his heart, I want you to flag this Sunday. I want you to, ra- I want you to wave a flag. <laughs> Some of you here know Byron. <laughs> That is the farthest thing on planet Earth from anything that Byron would want to do. 
So he drove there and he's like, God, there is no way I'm waving a flag at this meeting. He got there, the worship started, and Byron loved God. He, he was worshiping like this, and then God's like, I want you to wave a flag. And he's like, that is ridiculous. There's no way I'm doing that. So to avoid the heat, he did the classic church response, which is get up and go to the bathroom so you can exit <laughs> what God's trying to do. And in the bathroom, God's like, I want you to go back out there, and I want you to wave a flag. And he's like, God, I'm not waving a flag. Like, that's not... He gets back out in the meeting. He assumes the appropriate response again in worship. And uh, his hands are raised, and he feels a tug at his shirt like this. And he's like, looks down. And there's this little five-year-old girl holding a flag up to him. And I just imagined in his head, like, come on, really? A five-year-old girl? Seriously? That's what you're going to use? You're going to go to that level? <laughs> and he said, and I just, I was like, go away, little girl. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Get away, you know. And he said, he said, fine. And he just reached down in surrender, grabbed the flag, and closed his eyes. And he said it was the freest he's ever felt. It's the freest he's ever felt in worship in that moment. Now, Byron did not become a flagger from that day forward. Okay? And the point of the story isn't that every person in this room needs to wave a flag, but what is your flag? What is the thing in worship that God is asking you to do? And you're like, God, I'll worship you anyway, but I won't do that. Some of you here might be going, you know what? God wouldn't call me to worship in a way I'm not comfortable with. So we're going to end with this. Genesis. Genesis 22. I, I got through to about Genesis 35, but God cut me off at Genesis 8. But I do get to add this one in. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. I'll tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the place God had told him about, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. That's the first time in the Bible that the word worship is used. Right there. Genesis 22, in reference to a call to obedience. We will worship and we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. How many of you know that was not Abraham's preferred method of worship in that moment? How many of you know Abraham was not comfortable laying his son on the altar in sacrifice to God? But in that response, God says, now I know that you will not withhold even your son from me. And I think God is saying, I want to know that you're not going to withhold X from me, whatever that is. And I promise you that in responding, you will feel the freest you've ever felt. Because the great exchange is that when we are obedient, God pours out his blessing. He just does. It's like gravity. It's a law. It's seed and harvest. You plant a seed, you get a harvest. You're obedient. Where, where, where you obey, there's a commanded blessing that takes place. And if you're struggling with something and you're locked into something and you feel like you have shackles on your feet in any area, I want to say that obedience is the key. Obedience is the key to break out of that. And there's an incredible relationship. I have a million more points. There's obviously another sermon somewhere. But I just wanted to end on that story with, with Bai and just, uh, just what is your flag? I want to ask God to just, God, I just want to ask you right now, Lord, that as you're highlighting things in our hearts, things that maybe we've held back, areas you've asked us to lay down that we've been unwilling to lay down, God, that you would highlight those things, that you would give us a, a boldness to step out in obedience. And even when we can be like Eve, who rationally arrived at disobedience. God, we don't want to disobey out of a rational reasoning. It makes sense for me not to give you this, God, because then this would affect this area of my life. God, we don't want it to make sense. We just want to love you. We want to honor you. We want to offer you that which costs. We don't want to offer to you that which costs us nothing. We want it to cost, but not because we owe you anything, but because we love you. We want to honor you, God. Thanks, you guys.